We are back for week two of our technology series. Um, last week, we kicked it off by talking about uh, how technology is for the glory of God. Um, anyone want to just open up with what, what struck you from our discussion last week? Anything surprise you or you hadn't considered much before? I think one thing that was helpful for me is to understand that humans can't go beyond what God has already allowed them to do. So I think we, we see all the advances in technology and think, man, humans are becoming like gods, rearranging the human anatomy and making chips to put in your brain, all this stuff. But God has put a box around some things that they can't build it on. So yeah. that's comforting to know. Yeah, in, in creation, God has set limits and parameters about what is possible and what is not possible. So, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, um, it was good for me to think about, too, as we, as we read through some of that stuff. And because sometimes technology can be scary. It can be like, what is, what's possible? And we talked about how God is not like some observer just anxious about what we're going to do with his, with his stuff. What are they going to make next? He's not doing that. He has built in to uh, his natural creation certain limits. What else? Mine was the, like, the user not, like, I like to think, like, Facebook is bad, or, you know, it's it's the app, or it's the device, but <coughs> it's the user that really made it yeah. clear for me that it's, it's not so much the thing, it's who's using it, how yeah. they're using it. So technology, sometimes we can view technology as, as the technology is evil, um, but we can use social media for God's glory. It's possible. I haven't quite figured that out yet, but if you do, you can, you can share when we get there. But, uh, but it, is, it is possible. There's technologies that, the same technology I think we talked about that um, can create the atomic bomb, can also generate electricity to power uh, a city. Um, so there are ways that people can use technology for the good of man and for the glory of God, and there's also ways that you can use technology for the destruction of man and for rebelling against God. Uh, so very good. So we and we talked about um, the biblical principle. We saw that God was uh, innovative, and he he is creative, and that is his nature, and and we are his image bearers, and, and as such, we innovate and create uh, to fulfill God's purpose for our lives, for the creation mandate to work and keep and to um, fulfill the earth and, and exercise dominion over uh, all of the earth. Um, that requires technology. So we can't go live out in, you know, in the wilderness and just say, I'm not going to do any of it. Um, because if you don't, you're going to not have, I mean, you're probably not going to have enough food to eat, but uh, even Adam, as he's keeping the garden, he had to develop tools to grow the food, to store it. We talked about last week. So there are, technology is a good thing. It is a wonderful gift from God, both before the fall and after the fall. And it, I could argue that technology is even more important after the fall because that's when disease and death and um, 
sin and, and we have nations warring against each other and we have evil people doing evil things and, and so there are all kinds of technology that, that are necessary for us to defend the weak and to provide food for other people to uh, medicine for diseases and so there's all kinds of, of things where God has given us technology the ability to observe his creation and to use it for good purposes for the good of people and, and for his glory. All right. So where we left off, though, was on page five in, in last week's handout. And we were talking about God's sovereignty over man's innovation. So oftentimes we think, well, <clears throat> these people, especially these unbelievers, <coughs> Silicon Valley, <coughs> they're just using their technology and things to try and overthrow God. Well, they can't. Um, we looked at a couple of examples was uh, Noah and the ark. God said, make an ark, and he showed him the pattern, and, and Noah had to apply technology. He had to apply innovation to build that ark. Okay? And then we talked about also the Tower of Babel, how in rebellion, they used some of those same techniques uh, to build a tower to make much of themselves. And then God stopped them. So, we are stopped right there at question 19. What do we learn about God from those accounts? What could be the wrong lesson to take away, particularly from the Tower of Babel? Doing great things as humans is not inherently sinful. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah. Because if it was, that tower in Abu Dhabi, it's the tallest building in the world, wouldn't have happened, mm -hmm. or we wouldn't have gotten to the moon. It's the attitude in which they exerted while building the tower that was the problem. Yeah, and and uh, sometimes when we think about the Tower of Babel in particular, they're building this great tower and they're going to do this wonderful thing, and we think, oh, well, maybe that made God nervous. So then he came down and said, well, there's there's no limit to what they can do. Well, in in the story, um, the author, Moses, makes a point to say, God came down to look at the tower. And it was God um, not nervous about what they would do, about what they would not need him anymore. They were going to overthrow him. But God limiting because he didn't want that tower built. He wanted them to go spread out throughout the world. And so he made it happen. So God exercising his sovereignty over um, the created order, over mankind. Look at Isaiah 54, 16 and 17. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So, we've kind of touched on this a couple times. Are the possibilities endless for our problem-solving and creation as we seek to solve problems today? Are the possibilities endless? No. 
No, they're not. God limits it. it in fact, these um, there are other places in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10, for example, where, where God is saying that he is completely sovereign even over these nations that hate Israel. And he's going to use these nations to judge Israel. And he even says, they do not so intend. They don't intend to come and, and just discipline the Lord's people. No, they've got their own purposes, but God is using them to discipline his people. And here we see, not only does he create the people, he creates the blacksmith, right? He's making this up. But he produces, uh, I have also created the ravager to destroy. So the person who makes the weapons, the person who uses the weapons, God is sovereign over both. So that, that's a huge comfort to us, knowing that people can't thwart God. Even these big, strong nations who are, you know, fill in the blank with whatever the scary thing that you can put in there. God is sovereign over that. Over that person, over that group of people, over that um, force of nature. Whatever you're, you, you fill into that blank, God exercises his sovereign will over that. And he uses it for his good purposes. Any comments or questions along those lines? In summary, God is infinite in wisdom and knowledge. He is good and faithful. And there's nothing in all of the technological advancement that can catch him off guard. He sovereignly guides the course of history, including new inventions and technologies to accomplish his purposes. Okay. And then that last line is a typo. So you can just strike that. There. So, and that, would, that brings us to the end of that handout. So we're uh, talking about God's sovereignty over technology. It's not something we need to be afraid of or nervous about. If, if man is ever going to get to a point technologically where we upload a chip in our brains, we upload our conscience to some other thing, and now we're indestructible. No, no, no. no God's word stands. Uh, it's appointed for men to die once and then face the judgment. So God is sovereign over all those things. So it brings us to week number two. Um, this one... We're going to take a look at um, specifically digital technology. We're not going to get real specific yet, but talking about just digital technology like this and, and thinking about considering what power it has, how we're using it, um, and what, what it does to us as we set it before our eyes. Okay, so um, last week we learned, or I guess last week and for a little bit this week, Learn that God in his power, wisdom, and sovereignty, he guides and ordains all technology. Um, technology is a wonderful gift from God that helps us interact with creation and fulfill the mandate he gave to Adam and Eve. So with that's a review question. We're going to go ahead and skip over that one. Um, but our objectives today, uh, we want to consider the blessings and dangers of visual technology in our spiritual lives. And one of the questions we want to consider throughout this lesson is, is how should we think about what we are setting before our eyes? Okay. Some, of these, some of the ways that we've talked about this uh, before in relation to like pornography, uh, in relation to the types of movies we are watching, the types of books that we're reading, those things. So that we've talked about that, and we're going to extend that to any screen that we have in front of us. Okay? So... There's a, oh, by the way, I have a little note there. A resource that goes into a lot of detail about um, this idea of what we see and visual theology, like how we should be thinking deeply about what we're looking at, 
is a book called Competing Spectacles by Tony Ranke. Um, so I, I've got some of this the, uh, from our lesson today from, from that book. It's a really good book. It's, it goes really deep and kind of um, <coughs> philosophical in a way. So it, it was really helpful to think about and because we don't always, or maybe rarely, we, we evaluate why we're getting a piece of technology or why we're getting a, a screen. Why am I getting an iPad, iPhone, uh, computer, uh, a, a television? Why am I doing that? Because we just kind of accept it as a culture. It's, it's what we do in America, you know, in the, in the West, in the developed world. We have stuff. We just buy these things um, without thinking about what effect is this having on, on my life? And, and most importantly, on my ability to behold God, to concentrate and focus my attention on God. Uh, so that's, that's a, a huge question that we ought to be asking. So that's what we're going to be, that's the goal today. Uh, so look at point number two, in the eye of the beholder, we are made, we are created to behold. We are created to behold God and to behold the wonders he made. So imagine what it was like for e Adam and Eve to walk, in the cool, walk with him in the cool of the day, and even after the fall, uh, how we long to behold glorious, splendid things, right? So how is that desire to behold glory shown in, in the world? Nature. Nature? Yeah. Give me some more detail, Alex. Uh, I mean, you can just look at the sky. I mean, you can look at everything around you. Mm -hmm. His uh, majesty is represented in that. And, I mean, even non-believers recognize that God created mm -hmm. that. They might not follow, you know, our God, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, people want to go and see natural wonders, whether it's the beach, <clears throat> the mountains... The Grand Canyon. You want to see big things in creation like that. We want to look up at the stars and see. Look at get a telescope. Study that. Um, look at animals. Like look at what uh, creation. That's a good idea. That's good. So, yeah, how else do we do that? Through visual arts, <coughs> so paintings, uh, statues, architecture. I mean. We usually really big tall buildings that are going to be a spectacle are usually decorative or have some sort of design to them beyond just you know big square on top of another big square. Mm -hmm. So yeah. What about in, in technology? sparkling off the frost on the on the leaves I have to get my iPhone out and take a picture of it and then post it and say <laughs> look how beautiful you know those things and it becomes, it becomes this like 
this kind of transmission where it's it's not just something that I can silently and passively enjoy and praise the Lord for, but um, it's like we want to share these things. We want to show and mm -hmm. tell people of some of the things, some of the experiences that we have yeah. for many different like reasons. So there's a number of reasons you could do something like that, yeah. whether selfish or or not. Mm -hmm. yeah, so you, the use of, of social media. Why do people scroll with Facebook or Twitter? Why, why are we doing that? Sometimes it's a lack of contentment with our lives and wanting to see other things that aren't whatever we're going through in that moment. Mm -hmm. That's a more sinful reason for that. Mm -hmm. Other times, well, in my case, sometimes I'm looking for funny memes because I want to share it with people who start conversation and encourage people who are down and hopefully lead to God. But I don't know, sometimes I'm guilty of the lack of discontentment. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> so. so yeah, there can be a discontentment with whatever is going on right now with me and I, I want to see something else. I want to... What, what would that be? Like, it would be a distraction, right? Sometimes it's a, I want a distraction from something in, in my life, possibly. Other motivations for that? I think that, and I don't know if you've covered this when you've talked about this, but these social media platforms are not agnostic platforms. Mm -hmm. Electricity is agnostic. You can either, few, like, you can light up a city or you can shock someone to death. The electricity does not care. These platforms are not agnostic. I have acquaintances that make nearly a million dollars a year to drive algorithms to make these more compelling to use continually. Mm -hmm. Because the longer you're looking at it, the more advertising revenue they generate. And so that's what it's built to do. Yeah. And because like, so I use Instagram, it's the only social media I use, and I use it to look at people's cool cars and pictures of hunts and ultra marathon running stuff and cycling stuff. And that's it. But due to looking at it for years, it's really good at showing me that. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's on us. Mm -hmm. But you yeah. need to go, you almost treat it like, I would argue, you treat it like alcohol. <laughs> that you know that this is a dangerous road that you can go down. Mm -hmm. And if you think you can handle that road, that's fine. And a lot of it is the lack of contentment or boredom. That we live in a culture where we're obsessed with not being bored. Mm -hmm. Like the greatest sin that my child can bring to me about my parenting is that they're bored. <laughs> like we're not used to, like we don't, we have a world where, especially I think people my age and younger, is that we've had access to stuff really fast, mm -hmm. always. And so we're not used to having to be contemplative at all and spend any time with ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Cole and I went and ran 30 miles this, this spring and I spent 15 minutes of it by myself and was mad the whole time because my headphones died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so th there's a, we've, we've believed that we deserve maybe to be entertained all the time. So this is uh, seeking after something. Um, the fear of missing out, or FOMO as the kids call it these days, that's, that is a, um, an actual um, well, I'm not sure what the diagnosis, diagnosis is. I mean, it's not quite a diagnosis, maybe, but it's people genuinely 
if, if I say, okay, everybody, when you come in here next week, you're going to put your phones in a basket outside the room and just sit here without your phones. Or maybe when you come into church, we're going to have big buckets and you can, you know, here, we'll give you a sticker so you can check out your phone. But you're going to leave it at the door. Um, many of us would be better off for that. Some of us would be, okay, that's fine. Many people would be like hyperventilating and like not able. And, and I don't say that like, it's kind of a joke, but some people have a such an addiction, and and part of that is this fear that if I don't have constant information available to me at all times, that I am going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. There there is a, a significant problem when we have this this idol of information always available to me. If I if I don't know what's going on on this person's life who I don't really know I just met him through you know a friend once for 15 minutes and now I follow him on Facebook and I do this. no so that is where where a lot of our culture is heading I had to wait till six o'clock every day to find out what happened I'd never had any other way of finding out what happened except when the news came on mm -hmm. that was it and so now you can look at it all day long mm-hmm news as it happens actually as it happens yeah yeah and a lot of times that is not good no <laughs> that is not good rock along those lines too i think there there have been um like psychological research studies that have shown that people have the same the same type of reaction that if you were to amputate your thumb so if you were to have your thumb amputated um, you'd have this this syndrome where you feel like it's still there um, where people have those kind of feelings and thoughts towards their phones. And so they have this ghost phone syndrome, like they take phones away from people and they still feel the phone in their pocket, they still do this kind of stuff. Because they've made so many <laughs> mental connections to this device, um, wow. it's, it's, not, it's not a joke, it's actually real. Like, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and part of what, <laughs> this is kind of a joke, but I, I was on, you can, you can Google um, on, or on YouTube, pull up on YouTube these these clips of people who are texting while they're supposed to be doing other things, and it's kind of funny, but it's actually really. I mean, it's on a deeper level, it's sad because people are like walking in the middle of traffic and getting hit by cars, and they're walking in and in, falling into like manholes and, and things because they're just so consumed by this little screen that's in front of them. Or to make it more personal, like at family gatherings when we see family members or maybe ourselves opportunity to talk with love uh, help rebuke sometimes correct instruct children other family members but it's much easier to do this I'll, I'll tweet them a, a verse I'll send them a sermon Text them, I'm praying for you. Like, they're right there. And so that's a problem. That's, that's something that we're going to need to think about as we go through this, this series. And we're going to get into more of like social media aspects and, and things like that. Um, but what's in front of our eyes is uh, crucial. I know that with gambling, they have done studies on what colors, what sounds. Mm -hmm. You know, lights, they pump additional oxygen into the room so that you'll stay more alert. Mm -hmm. And of course, they offer free drinks usually, you know, to kind of anesthetize you so that you're not 
consciously, you know, realizing how much money you're spending. I mean, the manipulation is is terrible, and it makes me so angry that they're allowed to do that. Of course, our advertisements. How many times you hear, "You deserve, you deserve, you deserve a break today," or you know, on Medicare, "You de- get what you deserve." That's just irritating because I know I deserve hell. So why would I? And, and that's a that's a great point. And and one of the, one of the things um, that they're doing, like those flashing lights, if you go there, but they're trying to stimulate us and, and to make sure. Now, going back to what Chris said, also is there's a lot of that that's intentional. That is, um, so these these companies are not morally neutral. They're not like we just want to you know whatever people want to do that might help them. That's what we want to do as a company. No, we want to make money. And if I can make this harder for them to put down, let's do it. And, and that's from gambling, and that's from social media, that's from, uh, I, I got this really cool thing where at the end of this video, it's gonna take three seconds, the next one's gonna come up, and we're gonna see, um, and it, YouTube is one thing, TikTok is, is even more to that degree. Their, uh, their algorithms and their technology that they're using to suck people in is, is the most advanced. Uh, compared to all the other social media platforms. They're trying to catch up to them. Netflix, binge watching. They, they didn't do that on accident. So, so yes, there is culpability on these, on these companies and the people who are in the casino are there because they want to be in the casino. They can become kind of a nest. want to bring up both of those things. So the casino is trying to do it, but the person is not this completely passive, innocent person that was just sucked in. The person had desires in their hearts that led them to the casino. The, the, the person has desires in our hearts that led us to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all, all of those things. Led us to the TV to watch the game. Led us to the theater to watch the movie. There are we are all active moral agents <clears throat> and we're using some pretty addictive technologies. So both are true. And and we and so hopefully you're getting we're we're kind of fleshing this out. This is this is something we ought to be considering a great deal more than what we are. The screens that we have in our homes are, are changing the way that we live. And, and just kind of a, a small side note, there, there's a lot of um, brain research right now that's, that's talking about how the, the traditional view has been that a lot of your, um, your brain functioning and your brain development is pretty um, set in stone. Um, but the, there's, it's not brain new, but there, it's less known research about neuroplasticity is that this idea that my brain continues to change based on what I'm setting before myself. What I'm setting before my eyes, what I'm listening to and watching and paying attention to. Your, your brain starts to change. So, um, even more reason. This is really important for us to consider. 
um, and to be, be self-critical. Um, question yourself a little bit. Question your motives. Ask some people around you uh, for some help. And we'll get into a lot of that again as we continue on. Um, we've talked about three and four a little bit too. What tends to capture our attention? Um, one of the books uh, he talks about, I believe it's uh, Tim Challey's book called The Next Story. Um, he talks about like even even like identical twins raised in the same house. Don't you think if anybody was going to be exactly like it, be identical twins who share DNA and they have the same parents and have many 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 of the same exact experiences, right? But they they don't develop the same. Why is that? It's because they choose to behold different things. So that's where we're going. Look at, look at this definition of a spectacle from Tony Rinke's book, Competing Spectacles. A spectacle is a moment in time of varying length in which a collective gaze is fixed on some specific image, event, or moment. A spectacle is something that captures human attention, an instant when our eyes and brains focus and fixate on something projected at us. Okay, so that is the spectacle. Our culture is filled with spectacles. <laughs> now, we are created to behold God. Okay, don't look at the answer. What's the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy, enjoy Him. Yes, to, gl to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Look at Psalm 73. Right, there's going to be a connection to beholding here. Just a second. Psalm 73. This is, a, this is Asaph's psalm. He's talking about how he's um, got, he sees the wicked um, doing well, and he's not, and so he's having some trouble here. Uh, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And skip to 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Jump down to question five. What's the psalmist's error in the first part of the psalm? Envy. Sorry? Envy. envy. What is envy? What do you have to do before you can envy someone? Covet. To covet. Desire. self uh -huh. Yeah. So I'm I'm seeing something in somebody's life. That person does not love the Lord. Look at the car he's driving. Like to to a certain extent, that's what's happening to this to Asaph here. He's seeing the wicked people around him who do not fear God, and he goes on and on about how they they have an easy life. They don't consider God. They don't try to please God. They just do their own thing. Uh, they have, verse 4, they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. and They set their mouths against the heavens. And it goes on and on. So they're doing all these wicked things, and yet they're, they, got it, they got it easy. They got it good. And, and Asaph is looking at that, and he's beholding 
the wicked man. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the, the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Let me continue reading. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, Lord, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Where and when did he shift his gaze? <coughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Verse 16. Oh, I was upset. Frustrated when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. I don't get it until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He changes what he's looking at, what he's beholding. What was his conclusion? God doesn't let the evil go unpunished, mm-hmm. and in the end, there will be accountability for all the wrongs they've done. God is just, and justice will be served for all of the, the long list of things, the wicked things that the, these men are doing, these men and women are doing. God is not deaf to it or blind to it. He will make it right. And, as he thinks about that, justice of God, the bigness of God, how he sees all, he knows all. He thinks of God. He's beholding God. And then we see in 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? All those other things. It's like the psalm. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So that, that idea, that beholding God, causes all of these other things to kind of settle back where they ought to be. And, and in this conclusion, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. You are my portion forever. Look at John 17, verse 22. This is Jesus. Remember, he's, he's, in, he's praying, and he's about to go to the cross. And I, I mean, I was tempted to read this whole thing too, but verse 22 He's praying for, not only for his disciples, but now he's praying for the people who will believe on Christ through the word of the disciples, which includes us. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me 
may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you have sent me. So, verse 25, we see one way, maybe the primary way, that we enjoy and glorify God. What is it? Shouldn't be twenty five. That should be. Let's say how about twenty five. Twenty four. Sorry. Look at twenty four. What was the question now? What What is one of the <laughs> a way, perhaps a primary way, that we enjoy and glorify God. By beholding His glory. Mm-hmm. Being with Him and seeing His glory. So, before we can glorify God we have to know something of him we have to be introduced to revelation about God we behold God that is it's back to the song all the other things are dull all the flashing lights and all of the the glitter and the shiny stuff becomes not not appealing when we behold the glory of God, the glory of Christ. When, when we focus on his attributes, that reorients us to really understand who is what brings the most glory. I think. Yeah. Yeah. How and. Um, so when we, when we think back to that question, we our, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How do we do that? Well, we have to know who He is, to behold Him. One of the risks of some of this technology, these screens that are so engaging that draw us in that we kind of we want to give our our minds over to, is when are we stopping to consider? to focus on, to behold the glory of Christ. And, and the more that we give our minds over to these screens and to these things, the less able we become to separate from it, to stop it, and to give focused, diligent attention to the scriptures. Because again, that changes, it's changing our brains. The more that you get in, get something in front of your eyes. So, 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we see the chief end of man is to glorify God, enjoy him forever. 
And we've got these verses that talk about Jesus wants us to see his glory. He wants us to be with him where he is. We are to do everything, Paul says, even eating and drinking. When we go to snack time here in a little bit, <laughs> eat that snack and the coffee or the water or the milk, whatever you have, um, for the glory of God. How do, you, how do you do that? What do we mean when we talk about God's glory? There's kind of two, they're, they're of course connected, but we talk about what is, what is God's glory? That's the first question. His goodness is mm-hmm. one thing I'm thinking. Yeah. What else? I think there's a thankfulness there also as you, so whatever you're intaking, you realize that he is the author of. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't make that connection. We just if they will eat it, it's plentiful. Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't think of that as much as the things that we have, we have because he's given it to us. Yeah. And even so even if I push pause on technology for a moment and just I ask you, what is what does God's glory mean? What is that? It means his weightiness, like his essence, his um, like in the Old Testament, a king's glory would be his the, the weightiness or the, the um, responsibility you know, that, that that particular monarch had. And so with God, it's his weightiness, his essence, his godness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I don't know if it's describable, completely describable, but just, yeah, who he is. So, yeah. so when we taste Starbucks coffee in the morning, we can... We can think about the weightiness of God and who He is and how He ordained that probably thousands of miles from here, a coffee plant was growing and that people picked that, that cherry and took the pit and they did this stuff. So you can think about all these different ways that God's sovereignty and His weightiness orchestrated this to, to come about. You know, like, And you can take it from the micro to the macro. Like you, you can think about some of those things and God's weightiness and how... He is connected to all things, how he ordains all things, kind of what Mark was saying too, how his attributes are connected to all things. All things come about through him, that by his word, all things are held together. You know, it, when you when you kind of dive into it, it's it's just weighty. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how else yeah. It, so God's glory is his weightiness, like Russell said, uh, and it, it's his majesty. His authority. It, his authority, his power. All that God is, is weighty, and it is big and it is important so the splendor of who God is that's his glory and so Isaiah 6 we all know Isaiah 6 in in a year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And, and that's a picture of the glory of God. 
So that's what the glory of God is. And, and like Russell said, you can't really fully describe it and like nail it down. But th- that, the bigness, the weightiness, the majesty, the splendor of God, his power, all of his perfections, that, that's the glory of God. So how do we glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Mm-hmm. Honoring him. Yeah. So it's to treat God in all things as that glorious God deserves. It is considering him and regarding him in all of his perfection as I drink my coffee and as I drive to work, as I watch the chiefs, as I do any number of things. We're to glorify God in everything that we do when I eat and drink do all to the glory of God, regarding him as worthy of my attention, of my consideration, of my service, of my worship, of my love, of my songs of praise. We are to glorify the Lord, and we do that when we have beheld him, when we have seen who God is in Scripture. So, the connection between glorifying God and beholding God, you, you can't glorify something you've never paid attention to, you never considered, you've never seen. So for Christians, we behold God. So that's why we come here together on Sunday morning. Coming here together, we're hearing the word of God preached. We want to behold God. We sing songs about it, right? Behold our God. We consider his majesty. Point number three, what you behold, you worship. Let's look at a story from Exodus to see what the Israelites were beholding and how it led to idolatrous rebellion. Sorry for the, yeah, it kind of tipped my hand there. Look at Exodus chapter 19. Go ahead and turn there if you've got your Bibles. Exodus chapter 19. And this is, Israel is at Mount Sinai. This is, they've already seen the plagues, God's judgments on Israel. They've been guided out by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They've been protected from the (coughs) Egyptians as God split the Red Sea and they walked across it on dry ground. And then they saw as they turned around and the Egyptians started coming and then he causes it to fall over them and kills them. They've seen all of that. And here we are in verse 4. This is God telling, telling Moses what to say. He says, you yourselves, he says, say this to the people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what have 
What is Israel seeing according to God there in those verses? How God provided for them and protected them from Egypt. Yeah. The, the superpower of that time had enslaved them. And they watched as God. They didn't do anything. There was no uprising. There was no, hey, we got weapons. Go fight them. And it's like David Goliath. No, not, not that even. God did all the work. You yourself saw what I did to the Egyptians. What were they to do in response to what they saw God do? Be obedient. Yeah. Therefore, obey my commands. They were to remember what God had done, which again, which by the way, uh, I was thinking about remembering. We're about to remember when we take uh, communion in a little while. What is remembering? It's beholding again something that you have seen or heard before. So you're calling that to mind, and I'm going to behold this truth that Jesus Christ took my sin upon himself <coughs> on the cross. And by faith in Christ, he satisfies the wrath of God, and he also gives me his righteousness. I'm, I'm re-beholding that as I take communion. So they're, they're to remember what God has done for them. Jump to verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. What did I say? 16 through 20? 19. And as, uh, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So imagine, just, just try to imagine what that might have looked like and felt like. The cloud, the smoke, the fire, the lightning, and the mountain is shaking. And look at how they respond in verse 18. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So their response to this, as they beheld this manifestation of, of God's presence was to run for their lives. It was terrifying to them. And it would be to us still 
today. That you would think, okay, beholding all that God had done to Egypt, all that he had done as he guided them to the mountain, and all that they had seen as God comes down and manifests his presence on the mountain, and they're scared to death almost. Okay, we're, we're, gonna get, we're obeying God, right? Nope. Turn over to Exodus 32. This is where we'll, we'll end. First six verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where, what has become of him. Oh, man. So, what do they see? Everything they saw, they attributed to Moses. Mm-hmm. God. Yeah. So they make that big, like huge error, okay? God says earlier, chapter 19, remember what I did to the Egyptians. And they're saying, oh, that Moses, he's such a swell guy. Look at all he did. But look at verse 1. What did the people see? He was delayed coming down to the mountain. Yeah, they saw that Moses was delayed from coming down to the mountain. Now, they could still see the manifestation of God's presence on the mountain. And, but because Moses wasn't coming down on a timeline that they, they wanted, it starts them to thinking of other things. They turned their eyes from beholding God, the glory of God, the power of God, the majesty of God, and they start thinking about things on merely human level. Moses isn't back yet. I mean, come on. I want to get going here. So, how did they respond when they see that Moses is delaying? They ask for an idol. They demand that Aaron make them gods. Make them make us some stuff. It's very interesting that he didn't say, Aaron, you're in charge now, you just lead us. They they want him to make them an idol. Make them idols. And of course Aaron, he doesn't. We're gonna we're gonna come back to this next week and consider what is it about things that we see that we just we fixate on, as Israel does here. They want gods to lead them. Thanks, everybody.